Let's go to Romans chapter number 8, verse 23. The, the plan is, well, eventually to get to Romans chapter 8. We're only on the 20th week now of our messages here, but um, we are on verse 23, and we're working through the, the little section that carries us all the way through verse number 25. I, yeah, that's right. 23 through 25. So, I'm going to read this and we're going to have a word of prayer before we get started. It says in Romans 8, 23, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Heavenly Father, we have much, much to learn about this great salvation you've given to us. But this much we do know. It is because you love us so that you have made it so secure. There are times we doubt, there's times we struggle. You know that very well, and you're so patient with us, and you're so relentless. You will see this through, and we thank you, Lord, for that. As we look at these words today, may they also be words that challenge us. us. May they also be words that, that encourage us, stabilize us, uh, prepare us for this day, and the days ahead. As we walk with you, Lord, we just ask as simple as it is, draw us closer, Lord, to you. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here is a very interesting section. Matter of fact, this paragraph we started in verse 19 all the way through verse 25 is interesting. It's not a, a simple, it's not even a, a typical type of uh, paragraph that you find in Scripture because, well, it does an awful lot with nature in the first side of the, the paragraph. And simply, as I've been stating this as clearly as I hope I am, it's meant to illustrate something for us. Yes, he gives us some human type of terminology by giving it the ability to wait and to hope and to struggle and to groan and those kind of words that have been associated with it. And I'm not just throwing that all into the figurative department either because what we don't understand is that that creation is there and it is waiting for something. It's waiting to be what it was designed to be. And so we may not understand fully how it all fits, but the illustration is perfect for what we're looking at in verse 23 through 25, because that's where it applies to us. This is where we're going to understand uh, what God's plan is concerning us in our future. I can simply say, as I have in several weeks before, uh, our, our future is secure in Christ Jesus. I don't have any doubts whatsoever what he's doing or how it's going to end out. Because scripture makes that very, very clear. And it's just a matter of us resting in it. So in verse 23, 24, 25, we're talking about our future. And we're basing it on an illustration about creation and nature in the previous verses. It is, creation is waiting 
for what it was designed to be. And it's tied somehow to our release as well from the curse. And that day will come. And so, this is what the, the picture is before us. We talked about creation side now for two or three weeks in verse 20, 19 through 22. So, well, let's go to our side of it in verse 23. Now, I'm going to start with this. If I could put a, a note here to make this as clear as I possibly can. When you start into verse number 23, it says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption, in a sense, the redemption of our body. Who is being talked about here? Is that pretty clear? That word we and our just kept popping up all over the page. Now, I want to be very, very specific as I start in my terminology here this morning. This is for believers. These words I'm going to share with you are for believers in Jesus Christ. It's very important that we understand this. There are some who hold to some concept of a universal salvation and they just kind of lump everybody in the big pile and we're all waiting for the same thing and such like that. And the concept that everyone is saved and somehow it's all going to pan out and all these kind of things, that's not what Scripture teaches. It is not. I could just read a simple verse to you and state the fact that there are many who are on the road to destruction. Jesus himself said it, and he ought to know, shouldn't he? He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So there's a reality that a good number of people, many in contrast to few in the context, that are on the road to destruction. They are not saved. And they won't be, and ultimately, they won't be saved. And that's not who's being addressed in this verse. Alright? Just so we know that, as we go into this. We're not talking about everybody. Because there's a vast majority who do not know this and will not know this. But some people say, well, maybe it's just for, you know, the good people out there. I'm going to use uh, just a, a, an identity of a person that doesn't exist in my book, anyway. Uh, I'll call him Uncle Fred. If you have an Uncle Fred, I didn't know that. All right? Uncle Fred's a great guy. He's there for all your birthdays. He gives you a card. He always has money in it, so you like him a little bit more. Uh, he, he, he comes over for Christmas. You know, Uncle Fred, he's a great guy. He's, he laughs with you. He he around, he, you know, you enjoy Uncle Fred very much. Now, Uncle Fred is a good man. Everyone likes him. They like his personality. They like what he does. They like what he lives for, but he doesn't live for Christ. Uncle Fred doesn't go to church, and not that church has saved you, you know that, but church does tend to give us the clue that that person has something more in their desire than those who don't go to church. And so we say, okay, he doesn't go to church. But, you know, he's such a good guy. You know, even though there's no signs of spiritual life whatsoever, some reason there are folks who say, well, he's not as, as good as he ought to be, but he's good enough, isn't he? God doesn't condemn good people, does he? Well, Jesus said it this way. I am the way and the truth 
and the life. And no one, does that include Uncle Fred? No one comes to the Father but through me. It's very specific in Scripture. Now, why am I going through all this this morning? It's just because I'm going to talk about a group of people in these verses. And I want you to know who's not being talked about. It is not the world as a whole, and it's not good old Uncle Fred, who's as good as can be, but doesn't know Christ as Savior. We're talking about believers in Jesus Christ. All right? And you, and I believe it's you, who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we're talking to you today. All right? It's very important that I say that. And that's not out of some spiritual pride. I'm not standing up here and saying, well, aren't we special people just because of that? We didn't earn it. It was a gift of God's grace to us too. And so, when we talk about this, it's just a matter of being genuine with the text before us. And that's important to me. Uh, we have to be accurate in our Bible teaching and our Bible preaching because the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross for us to find a different bridge to cross to get to heaven. It was only through him. And that's the people we're talking about today. Those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. Okay? That's just the preamble. We're ready to go? Just had to know that. Main point today is what we have. What we have, we have. And next time it will be what we will have. And it's not next week, it's two weeks from now. So I hate to leave you in suspense. But uh, we're going to have to do it that way. We have a special speaker next week. But there are two important phrases, words or phrases, however you want to put it. And they're both found in verse 23. And that's our main verse for the whole paragraph anyway. And not only this, but also we. There's your first word. I'm going to talk about we in just a minute. We ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we, we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly. That's the second phrase. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul has, has done something very interesting here. He switched to the pronoun we. And I don't know if you've been noticing this as he's been working through the text. He's talking about a, a unique collection of believers, obviously. We're the beneficiaries of what Jesus has done. We are called sons of God in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And in verse number 16, we're called the children of God. So there are terms that we've been seeing come at us, identifying us. But in the first 11 verses, he never used a we... He, he was using those verse 11 verses to identify who are the believers. And by the time he gets to verse number 12, he switches right to the we passages. Where he starts, so then, brethren, once they identify themselves as believers, he just calls them what they are. You're my brother. He says, so then, brethren, we... And that's where Paul inserts himself into the, the whole... Uh, Audience that's being addressed here. He's associating with them as believers in Christ. I think it's interesting to see how that change makes it. Because the rest of the book, or the chapter, is so soothing, so encouraging, so uplifting. But it's designed for the believer. And Paul puts himself in there with them. We passages appear from verse 12 and it carries all the way through the rest of the chapter. But here's what I like about it. 
when I think of the future, and the future, yeah, I'm concerned about mine. Aren't you concerned about yours? And many times we say, this is about my future, my future, my future. But technically, it's about our future. It's a we passage. There's nothing I'm going to receive that you don't receive. Eternal life is what we share. Heaven is what we share. The presence of Christ is what we share. I'm not going to have front row and you're going to be third, fourth back or something like that. The fact is, it's a we passage. And it pertains to all of us. Believers in Jesus Christ. So, this is not some specially designed passage just for certain people. It's designed for all of us who know Christ as our Savior. This is our future. That's a we passage. Right? Now, that's a very easy thing to say. And if I say, okay, now let's go on to the waiting, you say, boy, this is going to be a quick sermon. Because we're on to point two already. Aha. Waiting. It says it in verse 23. We are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons of redemption of our body. Look down to verse 25. With perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We wait. We are waiting. We are waiting. I like it better to say, as the New American Standard does, we are waiting eagerly. Now, I've got some questions to you about that, but let me understand the word with you as what it means to wait eagerly. And you say, well, my text only says wait. Where do you get the eager side of this? Um, interesting word, by the way. Uh, not just to play Greek with you for a minute, but I will. Uh, Dexomai is the word to receive. Right? That's the verb you're looking at here, to wait. And you say, well, that's interesting. I, did, I haven't received it yet. And that's the point. It's got the word received in it, and here it is. Receive it, to accept it, to take it. I've got it, right? Now, in front of it is a pronoun, which is the word apo, which means you're away from that. You're away from receiving it. You see that? You're not there yet. You're, you're away from it. Matter of fact, it also has the pronoun ek, which takes it another step away. And so, here I am, apo ek dexomai. You say, okay, what's that? That means, I'm way over here, and it's way over there. And I want it. I can't wait to receive it. Now, in the reality of the words, I have received it. Right? This isn't a maybe. I have, re- I have received it, but I don't possess it yet. So I'm waiting. That's the nature of the word. I'm waiting for these things to happen that I might have it. Does that make sense? It's kind of an interesting word. But Paul made the word up. That's what makes it interesting. Only Paul uses this word in Scripture, and it's only a few times he does it. And he's one of those that says, hey, I've got a word to express. I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to keep adding pieces to it till it says what I want. And that's what he did here. And scholars look at it and say, wow, Paul, that's an interesting word you've got there. Matter of fact, two prepositions at the front. One of them can intensify the word. What do you do with two? It's a double intense type of verb. It's like, I can't wait. Now, you know where the eager comes from? That's what the translators for the New American Standard Version said. How do you communicate such a desire? Such a, I've got to have it. I can't wait any longer for it. Eager is a good word. And that's the word they chose to put next to it. It's to expect it. 
It's to expect it fully. It, it is to wait it out, as one person has written for us. It's intensely desirous to have what God has said we have. Okay? Wait eagerly is the perfect word for it. Very rare word, but this is the times when Paul used it. Like in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, he talks about waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That same word. I want to ask you something. Are you eager about the Lord returning? Boy, that tests your heart a little bit, doesn't it? Eager is the word that goes with that. Again, it's talking in Galatians 5, verse 5, about waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith. And he's talking about, you know, we've dealt with Romans, or Galatians 5 a little bit back and forth with our fruit of the Spirit passage. But the hope of righteousness, is that something you're eager about? That's another good question to raise here. In our picture of creation, in the previous verses of Romans 8, look at what verse 19 told us. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. There he has said it again. Matter of fact, it's not only over here waiting to receive, because it knows it's coming, but it's anxiously waiting. It's anxiously waiting. It just is straining to receive. That's a powerful little picture. And I wanted to set that before you here this morning because there's passion in the words. This is not a dry, dusty, ink paper type of uh, you know, process we're going through here. There is life coming out of verse 23 here. And there's a question that it has to lay upon our hearts today. When it says that we, we, are eagerly waiting. Guess what I'm going to ask you? Is that true? Of us? Of us? There's passion in this word. And it's what is meant to describe the believer. Not indifferent to what the Lord is doing. I don't know how many times in the course of the years I've been in ministry... I've met people who wear the name of Christ, attend the services, but boy, they're about as passionate as wet wood. I mean, they're not doing anything. You say, are they alive? Are they real? They're so indifferent to spiritual things, you wonder, what's with them? This word never fits. You've met people like that? You say, I don't understand this. You know, sometimes people act more like bored believers than blessed believers. We act as though maybe we've been fed sour fruit. Somehow we replace joy with the word job. Somehow we, we've looked at salvation as survival. And we strip it of passion. We, 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 I know, we've been rebuked this way before, haven't we? We've heard these things. We've even heard it in choir practice on time to time. We're singing the most beautiful song and it looks like our puppy died. Why is that? That, that? that we lack the passion. The passion. We could say it in funny ways, in joking ways, but in, in all due respect, we have stripped something essential 
as to what it means to live out our faith as we wait for Christ to come for us. We stripped away the eagerness. The eager side. And if we're not eager about our future, what's wrong with us? For it says in this passage, we are waiting eagerly. And I had to stop right there and say, am I? I had to evaluate that in my own heart. Am I? Okay, I'm going to ask two questions. That's, that's the whole gist of where we're going right now. Two questions today. Why are we waiting? And the second question is, why are we waiting? All right? Those are my two questions. They shouldn't be hard to remember. But first question is, why are we waiting? The process has already begun concerning us. God's plan is already in place. He saved you, and it's amazing to me, He saved you, He called you, He, he adopted you as a son. According to Ephesians chapter 1, even before there was an earth. That's an incredible plan God has. Now, was He mistaken? Is, is that just not going to work? He didn't consider who, who we really are, did he? <laughs> he? He didn't consider how we're going to mop up so many things, did he? Matter of fact, he not only has thought that through from before we were in existence, but he also has already seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, is he pretty sure that we're going to be there? He's already marked your seat, folks. He already knows you will be there. He knows his plan. Now, to me, that's absolutely amazing to consider. This plan's already in motion. It's already what he's doing. Matter of fact, we have received it, though we are still eagerly waiting. We have received it. It's like a gift that somebody says, yes, it's yours. You just have to come and pick it up. All the way over there, you know, it's yours. Are you going to be surprised if you get there and they say, ha, ha, I was teasing you. I gave it to somebody else. See, God has said, it's yours. All right? That's the nature of the word, to receive. But we're waiting for that. So, the process already begun. That's my first point. When I talk about why are we waiting, it says in Romans 8.23 that we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, stop right there. That's a very interesting terminology here. First fruit. We should understand it, I think. Even though it's got a Jewish mentality behind it, it's an agricultural concept. The first fruit is the first that's gleaned. The first that is sown, not sown, but received off the, off the field. You go out there and you pick the very first thing. You started the harvest, right? You picked the first. That's the first the Jewish had uh, special services related to that. It's called Pentecost, the celebration of Pentecost. First fruits is what they called it. Very interesting theological meaning and all that that goes into this. But it was simply the time that the first of the crop was to be picked. And there came with that a promise. If you pick the first, you're bound to have the second. There's a future with a crop. Once you pick the first, There's more to follow. And the concept that's used in Scripture is this. Paul even argues it from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
First Corinthians 15, verse number 20, he's talking about the resurrection. Great chapter. I love the chapter. We've been there before. But in First Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, his resurrection went first so that many could follow. Many could follow because of this, that he rose from the dead. He says in verse 21, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and we know that too well, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. That's you and me. So we have a guarantee of our resurrection here. And this is essential because it's based on his. If he wasn't resurrected, you would not be either. Alright? That's the theological essence of the nature of the term. We could never be raised if he was never raised. He is the first fruit. Okay, you have that? Think that for a minute. And secondly, it says in Romans 8 as well, in verse number 23, not only is the first fruit mentioned, but the first fruits of the Spirit are mentioned. We have the Holy Spirit in us because we have received Christ as Savior. He is in us. The Holy Spirit has a job. Among other things, He is the deposit. He is the guarantee. He's the down payment. He's the earnest, if you will, of our inheritance. In Ephesians 1, 13, 14, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. It says it again in 2 Corinthians 1, 22, that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge in our hearts. Now, what's all that mean? That means that as far as first fruits are concerned, Christ is risen from the dead, so will you, right? So, whatever he has laid out before us, we're going to follow. He's already laid this out concerning our future. As far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, he's in you, and he's the promise that's going to happen. So as you start to develop these things, I just simply say this. The process has has already begun. We're already in the motion of what's happening here. It's already happening. We're not waiting for this to happen. We have the first fruits now. We have it now. That's what he says in Romans 8.23. Right now we're having it. It's a present participle. Right now. It's not a wish that we might find it somewhere. It's now. You have it, folks. That's great. You're holding that. That's great. That's your promise. That's your pledge. That's your guarantee of the future. It's our security. It's what Christ has done for us. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. We have it. Now, I'm setting that down as a very strong anchor right now. Do you feel it? I don't want you to miss those simple words. We have this. And if we have this, then that future is secure. See it? That's what he's trying to show us in these words. He's simply saying this, that we have the promise of eternal life. Now, we haven't seen it yet, I know, because we haven't been there. All we know is life on this earth. You notice that? 
This is what we know. All we've ever done is lived in these bodies. Some people teach that you were something else before, before you became a human. I don't know what that would be. A pelican or whatever. I don't know what you'd want to be. But Scripture doesn't teach that. It says, here's your body. God designed it that way. You're born that way, right? You did have a body when you were born. It's the same one you're still wearing. Oh, it looks a little different. But there it is. Same body. Guess what? You keep it your whole life. That's your body. That's all you've ever known. It's all I've ever known. These bodies that God gives us. We know that they're limited, don't we? Oh, yes. We know that they can get sick. We know that they have pain. We know that they know sorrow. We know what it means to get tired. We know what it's like to have well-intentioned plans that never happen. We know what it's like to get uh, uh, conditioned to accept disappointment. We do. We know what it's like to have dreams that are unfulfilled. We know what it's like to have tasks that are unaccomplished. We know what it means to be let down. We know that, well, we think this way. Be careful. You don't invest everything in one thing. We get kind of wisdom like that because you don't expect everything to work out. And then Paul's saying this. You have a sure thing, folks. You have a sure thing. It's bought by the blood of Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a sure thing. And we should have confidence in it. We should have a confident expectation about it. We should be waiting eagerly for it. With anxious longing. Because it is our hope. And I underscore our hope. It's been given to us. Do we have to see it? To believe that. That's what he's asking in verse 24 and 25. For in hope we have been saved. For hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. There are those who say, first you show me and I'll believe it. Just like Thomas. The original Missourian. Show me state, right? Prove it to me first and I'll believe it. Show it to me. Show me the hands and then I'll believe it. Let me touch that side and I'll believe it. I honestly, when I thought this through, I said, is there really much middle ground between these two points? One group would say, show it to me and I'll believe. And the other group says, I believe and I'll see it when it happens. What's between those two points? I don't think there's a whole lot to tell the truth. Because we're either in one or the other. We're either operating all the time by, by saying, well, Lord, prop up my faith. Give me something to prop it up with. Give me some sort of support so it stays firm. And yet, on the other side, Scripture says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, I think sometimes we tend to lean on the one side where we say, Lord, prop it up. It doesn't seem to fit right now. It doesn't seem to work right now. But Paul's not standing in that position at all, is he? He said, you have it. You haven't seen it yet, but you have it. You have it. And it's a matter of faith. Because without faith, folks, it is impossible to please God. You know God wrote that? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. God said that. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. 
So he takes that very seriously. He talks about hope. And he says, you have this hope. And if you believe that with all your heart, that's your faith. That's what's resting in the fact that it's true. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Why should we doubt? So why are we waiting? That was my first question, right? Why are we waiting? Here's my, my opinion on this. I believe the Lord is building us in that faith. He's building us in that faith. His plan is not yet complete. That is absolutely true. And we haven't matured yet to the point of, of where he's aiming us to be. But he is in the process and he's building your faith. I think that's why one reason why we're waiting. He's busy building our faith. Second question I asked you was, why are we waiting? Now, when I read verse number 23, it says, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, not, that does not negate the word wait, by the way. It, to groan, to groan, some people say, well, there must be something wrong. You're groaning. No, you're desiring, is what it is. You're waiting for something. Uh, we're not yet what we're created to be. We're not yet there to what we're going to be. John said it so well in his epistle. He says, it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know. And what do we know? That when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We know that. But we're not there yet, are we? We're waiting. We're going to be like him. Think of that. Like him. Similar in, in appearance. Really? We all have beards. No. You know better than that. Similar in character. Similar in manner. We will resemble him. We will correspond to him. That's our destiny, folks. It says here in Romans 8, and this is the verse I can't wait to get to, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's where he's taking us. He's conforming us to the image of his Son. You know what? It's not easy to wait. That's reality. We're not there yet. We are not yet conformed to Him as we shall be. And so we ought to groan. And I'll tell you why I think that should be the case. The illustration last week was that creation is waiting to be what it was designed to be. And it was in the process of, of, of the birthing process. And it's all cramped up inside and it's waiting to be born. And it's groaning and it's moaning and it's restricted. and it's, That's the nature of the word when it says groaning. And creation is groaning because it's waiting to be released into its freedom. As a Christian, we should feel very much like that. We are not yet what we're designed to be. But we hear the words of what we are designed to be. This picture of groaning means that we're in a terribly uncomfortable present situation. Soon, hope it's soon, 
we will find the freedom that comes when things are changed. But until then, we have a hope. Even though we haven't realized it yet, we know it's coming. We wait. But here's the point. Should we be comfortable in our present situation? Does groaning suggest be comfortable? Be satisfied with where you are right now? Let me say it this way. We are citizens of heaven. How comfortable are we here on this earth? How comfortable are we here in these sin-infested bodies? We are created in Christ Jesus to be like Christ Jesus. Are we satisfied with anything less? Are we? Do we have a spiritual apathy all around here? That we're satisfied with this? I asked the question twice, but now the second question, why are we waiting? I think that we will come to realize that his plan for us is much greater than what we ever know now. I think there is a glorious work that's going on. As you become more like Christ, a discontentment builds. And you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound biblical. But listen carefully, okay? A discontentment of being woven into the fabric of this world and not into the image of Christ. A a discontentment that leads us to want a deeper spiritual walk, that wants to desire more than the things of this world, a thing that's higher, a higher plane to walk on. We want something to be more consistent in us that speaks of glory, don't we? Do we eagerly wait for that? Do we desire that above all things, to be like Him? There's an eagerness there. And that's where the measurement comes in, in our thinking right now, is how much do we want it? There's hope that we have, this change that we're going to experience, what He has planned for us, what He has set before us we're going to be. How eager are we to have it? There are three quotes I'm going to read to you and a Bible text I'm going to read to you. I think there are three things that characterize the average Christianity today. I just thought that average Christianity. And you know how it works. If the shoe fits, put it on. You'll know what I mean. There are three words that I think fits very well in our day and age. Complacency. Contentment and cowardness. Here's one quote. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Ouch! Charles Spurgeon. It's been over 100 years, 140 years since that. There is a spiritual smugness, I think, in our day and age. Uh, The gospel would identify it as self-righteousness, by the way. A complacency within ourselves thinking really more of us than we truly are. 
we are complacent to the spiritual things. And we grow a contentment in that way, too. Because here's the second quote. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. That's one to think of. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Are we content with everything else but Christ? There's a test for the heart. I told you cowardness is the third one. This present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, he is a fanatic. And if he hates the powers of evil, he is a bigot. Have we heard that recently? Have we seen that recently? All three of those quotes were from Spurgeon. And it still rings true today. We are cowards in many ways. We would say, you know, it's easier to go with the stream than it is to stand for Christ in a world like ours. Because we don't like the names. We don't like the tags. We don't like the way they label us. Is that cowardice? Well, think about that for a little bit. I call these three things plagues, personally. The plagues that characterize Christianity today. And so I told you I wanted three quotes, and I gave those to you, and I want one text I want to read to you. Second Corinthians chapter number 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 1 through 8. You follow along. And I want, to, I want you to, to ask yourself something as I start to read this. Can I hear this? Does this make sense to me? Do I understand what Paul is saying here? I want that to be your question that you raise. Because it's all about what does it mean to wait? And wait eagerly. So as I start to read, think about this very carefully. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 8, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that which what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us a spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Where's your home? Where's your home? Do you have an eagerness about you today? That's been the big question. An eagerness to be home. 
Did you hear it? Could you hear what he was saying? Can you understand these things that were presented here in this passage and in Romans as well? I don't think the immature believer is going to understand it. I don't think that unless we're growing, we're going to get it. But the more you become like Christ, the more you realize you need to be like Him. You want to be like Him. You want to be with Him. Do you? That's the two words. We, waiting eagerly. Is it true of us? Folks, that's what we have. That's what we have. We haven't even touched on what we will have. That's coming in a couple of weeks. But we have to start here. Let's start before the throne. Let's have a word of prayer here. Talk to you, Father, about these things. For this passage stands before us. And now we measure ourselves according to these words. We hear such things as eager when it comes to waiting. And I I can't help but reflect on my own heart and wonder if that's where I am. And that's what I want. I see the passion of God's Word, but I want it to be the passion of my heart. And I want to be there, desiring these things that you have designed for me. I pray that for our church body. Each individual here knows Jesus Christ as Savior. I want this to be the passion of all of us here, to eagerly, eagerly be waiting for what we are going to be. You have made it crystal clear that this is the path we're on. And now it's a test of our desire. Lord, may we not be complacent in this. May we not be content with where we are, especially as we've been woven into the fabric of this world. May we not be cowardly, because your promise is true and it's sure. And it's about your love. Somehow we let the world gain the upper hand and scare us into thinking that it's not, it's not fitting to declare that we are children of God and we have a hope. What a world we live in today, Lord. What a difficulty. We want to be like you. Instill that within us, Lord, and may it grow stronger each day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.